Take your Bibles. Let's locate Mark chapter 2. It's the second book of the New Testament. For those who are new Christians, maybe just getting into this thing called Christianity and reading your Bible, it's the second book of the New Testament, the gospel according to Mark. And I want to help set our sights this morning so that we're all aiming at the same target. Um, Let me do that by just telling you a little bit about Julie and me and our dating relationship uh, about 30 plus years ago. We, most of our dating experience was long distance. We dated for a few months in college, face-to-face, person-to-person, when we both attended Tennessee Temple University. She eventually went back home to Michigan. I graduated, and so um, uh, we only dated a few months, broke up, and so we, we just kind of went on with our lives. It was not till I moved out and was living in Georgia that I called her and we reconnected. So from that point to our marriage, most of our dating experience was long distance. We saw each other maybe a month at a time over a period of several months. But for the most part, it was phone calls, letters, shoe boxes of chocolate chip cookies, things like that. And here's why I tell you that. There was a definite difference in our moods when we were apart And when we were present, there was not only a definite difference in our moods, there was a definite difference in our practices. For instance, uh, we wrote a lot of letters. Those are things that are on paper, and you put them in an envelope, it's kind of have the wet part, and then on the front you put this thing called a stamp. And you drop it in what's called a mailbox. It's a little bit of an antiquity there, but uh, we did a lot of that. Uh, She also made cookies for me, and she'd mail them in a shoebox, and every week or so, I mean, I would devour those things, you know, and... Uh, We did a lot of calling, and at that point, you paid for long distance. Remember that? Some of you folks who are aged like me are nodding your head. Yeah. And so we had to kind of space out our calls. Like, well, I'll call you Friday, next Friday, and you kind of know you can only afford so much time. Had a cord attached to it, to the wall even. (laughs) And so while we were apart, there was this sense of anticipation that would build from our practices, from from our emotion. I remember the, the week of our marriage. I was in Georgia and the holiday. We got married around the Christmas season. And so uh, they closed down work. So as we had some time off, so we shut it down. I remember jumping in that little Subaru I had and taking off for Michigan. Uh, I got a ticket somewhere in Kentucky. I was just so excited about seeing her. So I had this anticipation. I wasn't sad, and yet I had this sense of like when I wasn't with her, you can imagine, like, I just want to see Julie. She had the same feeling for me. What if when I would have arrived in Michigan, two days before our wedding, I would have said, great, we're together. I'll write you tomorrow. And what if when I got up, I'm in you know, this bedroom of her parents' house, she's over here, and, and uh, breakfast is served, and I go down and I give her a letter. What I want to say is in this letter, just read it. And I don't talk to her. That'd be just weird. Would you agree with that? It's ludicrous. Like, you're with her, Todd. Talk to her. Right. What if when I see her, I'm still sad? Like, oh, I just, I just want to see you so badly. I just, I just want to be with you. And she says, hello, you are. Like, there's something about distance that actually kind of affects our demeanor. Wouldn't you agree? I want you to kind of keep that in the back of your mind, how really distance is, or the lack of it, 
is what, what makes the difference in our demeanor. Just kind of hold that because that's going to set our sights for this text we're going to look at. It's in Mark chapter 2, five verses. Verses 18 through 22 is where we're looking this morning. And for those who maybe just be jumping in this week, maybe you're new to our series through Mark, we're looking at the three questions, at least currently, you're looking at the three questions that were asked of Jesus. This is question two. This series is kind of a mini-series within the larger books called Q&A with Jesus. And these questions are about three things. The first one, as Travis taught us a few weeks ago before Easter, was about people. This one's about practices, and the next one next week is going to be about priorities. And in each case, they ask Jesus a question, and he answers them. What we're going to find at the end of next week is that really he asks them a question at the very end. Things are escalating, they're heightening, the tension's increasing. This is just part of that conversation between religious leaders, various people, and Jesus, and it's kind of in the form of questions. Here's the question they ask today in Mark 2, verses 18 through 22. It begins in verse 18. Listen very carefully. You'll pick the question out in no time at all. The Bible says that John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. That was a practice within that culture. It's a biblical practice. It was commanded in the Old Testament only once, by the way. It's to be done in the Mosaic, under the Mosaic law in the Jewish culture on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in the Jewish environment. Once a year they were to fast, but you'll find that they're actually fasting a lot more than just the once that's required. That's not necessarily wrong. It's just what was. So they're asking, hey, why do John's disciples, this is verse um, 18, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? It seems to me that if you're who you say you are, you and your people would do more of this. But these guys over here, John's disciples, the, the ones of the Pharisees, they're fasting, but you're not. Why is that? There's the question, the second of the, the three that we're looking at over this set of weeks. Here's his answer. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So there he answers the question specifically, but watch what he does next. Verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. He kind of broadens their view now. He's going to answer more than the question. He's kind of given perspective upon the, the general idea. He says, if he does this, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Like, wow, what's he saying there? Just a question about fasting, and he's talking about wine and wineskin and patches. I mean, what, what's the deal? What's going on here? I'm glad you asked that same question. Let's unpack this, because I think that the, the answer, the text here, is in two simple sections that really speak to us today. It's really verses 18 through about 20, in which he answers the question specifically. Now, I'll kind of divide this up for you on the screen behind me. You'll kind of see it happening. And then he broadens out, and he, he addresses the issue I would say generally. So let's start by answering the question specifically. It's a beautiful answer. It'll bring joy to your heart. Look what he says. Here's why my disciples don't fast, Jesus says. 
He says, because basically I'm with them. Do you catch that in his rhetorical questions back to them? He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The point is no. Like, when, you, when, when the bride and bridegroom are together, you don't need to fast because why? They're with each other. In other words, the practice that was instilled, perhaps, to kind of increase anticipation, which is what fasting would do, it increases anticipation. It heightens our awareness that, that we're, we're really not to the ultimate moment yet. It's, it's making us long for something. That's what fasting does. He says, when they're together, there's no need to fast because they are actually together. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. There's no need to fast. But then he makes this in verse 20, what I think is somewhat of a reference to his ascension, to the fact that he's fully aware that his mission one day will be completed and he'll go back to the Father. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Almost a veiled reference, isn't it? And then they will fast in that, in that day. So I would say to you textually, there's really only 33 years that no fasting is necessary. Do you know that? In a technical, textual way. What 33 years were those? When Jesus was here. Because why fast when what you've been waiting for is with you in person? That's what he's saying. Now, now I want you to hear the incredible impact this would have had upon those Jewish leaders because he used an illustration that that you probably and I probably are like, okay, it makes sense, but it doesn't land with the weight it did on these guys. In the Old Testament, the only one ever known as Israel's husband, the only one ever referenced in, an, in a wedding type of metaphor was Yahweh, God. The Messiah wasn't referenced as the bridegroom or the husband. Israel saw Yahweh as their husband. In fact, as the prophets would speak to Israel in their days of wandering and rebellion, they would often say, you've committed adultery. And I won't even go into the explicit language used by Jeremiah to describe their, their adulterous habits spiritually. And it was adultery on Yahweh. And when the ten northern tribes were, uh, I don't want to use the word threatened, but when God said to, to them, you know, I'll divorce you. It was God the Father. It was Yahweh saying to them, you can't spurn this kind of love forever. Now watch this. For Jesus to use the wedding imagery to these religious Jewish leaders and the people listening, that was only used in the Old Testament by Yahweh. What do you think Jesus was subtly but, but yet very directly claiming to be? Yahweh. He's claiming to be God. This is another one of those ways in which, like in the previous time when he says, who can forgive sins? They're going to say, only God. And yet he forgives sins. It's like, well, guess who I am? Here he's saying, guys, you've heard, you've read about the, the wedding imagery between Israel and Yahweh. Well, guess why you don't fast? Why my disciples don't fast? Because when the bridegroom shows up, you don't need to. We're together. The anticipation's over. He's arrived. What he's saying in, in no uncertain terms, yet metaphorically, is the bridegroom has arrived and I'm him. This is a beautiful declaration of the deity of Christ. And that's why I say in this text, they, these religious leaders want to make it about fasting. 
But it's really not about fasting. This is about the deity and the recognition of Jesus Christ as God. And so specifically to answer the question, he says to the Pharisees, they don't fast because I'm with them. I'm the one they've been waiting on. There will be a day in which they'll need to fast again. And by the way, we're in that day. But that day was not while he was on the earth. He says, when I'm here, you don't need to fast. So does that answer the question at least? From a textual, uh, I use the word technical point of view, the answer to the question is, they don't fast like these other disciples because I'm here. They know who I am. And I think he's saying to them, I want you to recognize that as well. But he broadens the understanding of this in verse 21 to, to practices in general. I think he starts with this practice of fasting. The Pharisees implemented it, even though they expanded it beyond just what the Bible commanded, which was once a year on the Day of Atonement. They actually expanded it. Where they made their mistake was they would expand it, and then they would require their expansions of it. So in that culture, the Pharisees would fast on Mondays and Thursdays every week. And they began to require these things in obedience to the law. And they would say, well, unless you obey like we're obeying, you're not really worthy or good or righteous. And so this is why Christ would later say to them, you've turned the traditions of men into the commandments of God. There was really only one commandment for fasting in the Mosaic Law. Once a year on, on the Day of Atonement. But they've turned this into something far more than just what God intended. And, and so their practices have, have kind of blinded them, to be honest with you, to who the person of Christ is. And so Christ kind of gets to this idea of like, okay, so what's going on here generally? He says in verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. In other words, you don't take something that's new in the sense of patching something. You don't take the new garment, put it on the old garment, and then wash it, and you wash them both, it's going to tear because you have two different fabrics that are that have two different age uh, situations going on. In other words, they're just, they, they won't mix. You can't expect the new to adjust to the old. Same thing with the wine and wineskins. In other words, here's what he's saying. Don't expect Christ, the bridegroom, to arrive and then to fit into your old systems and structures. And specifically, he's referring here to Judaism. Don't expect me to come in here and suddenly kind of approve and stamp all of your man-made practices, all of the ways you've expanded and extended them to, to, to suddenly be on the same level as the law. He said, I can't fulfill the law, but I am bigger than the law. So in other words, the structures need to fit into Christ because they point to him. In other words, we don't ask Christ to show up into our existing lives. We don't say, hey, here's kind of how my life's going. Can you fit into that? I've got this, this, and this, and this. And can you adjust to just kind of accommodate what I'm already doing? No, we lay our life down for him. We forsake our lives. We, <laughs> does that make sense, guys? I mean, I'm kind of stating the obvious here. What he's saying is here, don't expect the new patch, the new wine, to make all the adjustments, because when that happens, you'll lose both. And this is what the Pharisees actually did. They refused to see how Christ was there to shake up their systems. 
to actually fulfill the law and then replace it, fulfill it, be the one the law pointed to so they would take their trust away from what they were trusting and put it into Christ. They missed every bit of that. And what happened? Yeah, they lost their opportunity to trust Christ. Both were destroyed from their perspective. I think the larger picture here you're saying is this. When it comes to practices in general, we don't ask Christ to fit into our molds or our systems. We make sure that we fit into his. Now, let me just kind of make this very plain and simple to you because let's just take fasting. We have practices today that we do that should help us long for and anticipate Christ, correct? One of those is fasting. But did you know that nowhere in the New Testament is fasting required? There's not a new covenant command to fast. Yet you find fasting mentioned over 30 times in the New Testament. So, should we fast? I'm waiting for an answer. <laughs> yes, we should, but is it a command? So, we would say it's one of those helpful spiritual habits. It increases your anticipation. It causes your heart to long for I would I'd encourage all of you to fast. But I would not say to you, if you don't fast... You're wrong. You're out of sync with God. I wouldn't say that to you because there's no real biblical command. I can't expand my own personal practice in something and then lay it on you as a command and say, until you do this, you're out of fellowship with God. Does that make sense? When I do something like that, I'm missing the point of the practice. I'm suddenly making the attention and making the issue the actual practice and not the point of the practice. Who's the point of the practice? Jesus Christ is longing for him, anticipating him, loving him. All of our practices, and we'll start with fasting, should lead us to that point. And suddenly when it doesn't, when it becomes a legalistic type of, of noose that we're, we're choking people with and strangling them with, then we've missed the point of the practice. Now, fasting is not a New Testament required practice it is a helpful one there are ones however that are required you know that but the same principle applies even in required practices they should point to christ they should build in our hearts an anticipation they should increase our appetite for christ's presence they should help us see that wow we're in the kingdom already in some sense and yet it's not totally consummated and so we have this joy and yet we know that our joy will be be even increasingly satisfied. It's like we have two-handed joy, I call it. We know that Christ has come, and so our joy is, in, is inexpressibly deep. He fulfilled his word, and his spirit is left with us, John 16, and so he left the spirit, one scripture says, so that our joy would be full. This is exciting. This is exhilarating. And yet, how many of you would admit that we do long for his appearing? We long for the day when all the wrongs will be made right, when injustice will be no more, there'll be justice. He'll reign visibly. Like we long for that day. So there's a sense in which while we have a deep joy, we also have this other type of unfulfilled joy. Like it's just going to be even better when he comes. And so we have this two-handed joy. Practices are designed to help us with that. Kind of hold, hold both joys. One of those is what Taylor mentioned earlier. The gathering of the saints. 
We're commanded to meet together. Did you know that? But there is some room, some discretion in how, how, how you meet, how often you meet. I know pastors who say only one service, they wouldn't split their service. They wouldn't have multiple campuses. They feel like it has to be all together at one time. Amen to them. Some guys can have multiple campuses and multiple services. I say what? Amen to them. There's a variety of ways to, to make sure that practice is implemented. But what the problem is then when suddenly the guy who says you cannot have more than one service ever. It's got to be all the church all together and that's the only way to do it. Then suddenly he kind of places that on somebody else. Like, whoa. Then suddenly we miss the point of the gathering, which is to worship and celebrate Christ, to see the gospel lived out in the ordinances. Suddenly we're missing that. We're, all, we're thinking about, well, are we meeting this guy's demands? Or are we doing it like he said we should? Are you, are you tracking with me? Then suddenly we're missing the point of the practice, which is Jesus, and we're all worried about the practice. You could substitute a number of things, like communion. Communion is a, a commanded practice of the New Testament church. We observe it weekly in our current time, in our current situation. We may continue to do that for a while. We may go to a different schedule eventually. We have some freedom there. Other churches do as well. Are you with me? But if suddenly everyone gets all uptight about the, the schedule of it as opposed to the point of it, we're missing the point of that as well, which is what the Corinthians did. They were arguing about communion. Who are you, whose group are you in? Paul's or Peter's or Paulus's? And Paul wrote to them and said, listen, guys, you're disunified about the very thing that actually unifies us which is the Lord's meal. So do you see what I'm asking you about? I'm asking you this. As you practice your practices, which are designed to make you long for Jesus, to love Jesus, are you getting distracted and you're all hung up about the way the practice is done as opposed to the person it's designed to point to? That's what's going on here. Let me mention two more to you. We all know that witnessing is a good practice. You could use whatever word you want there. Sharing your faith, gospel conversations. And I think sometimes our generations can um, word that differently. But we've been using this card lately to help us think about sharing our faith, about witnessing, about talking about the Lord. It's called Who's Your One? Now, is this idea in the Bible? No. There's no Who's Your One verse anywhere in Scripture. If you haven't filled this out, you're not sinning, all right? But we ask everyone, take a card, ask yourself, who's one person that you can pray for, that you can begin to kind of talk to and, and see if, how God would use you to lead them to Christ? Is that a healthy habit? Is that a helpful habit? Yes. It's a practice. Are you with me? Now, witnessing's commanded. This is one of the ways we help obey that practice. But if we got hung up on the card, like, oh, Ben, you didn't fill out your who's your one card, dude. I'm telling the elders, you're in trouble. Like, that'd be weird pastoring, wouldn't you agree? Like, the same thing with the discipleship pathway. We have a, a tool we use to help you know where you are in your discipleship. We have an online form. You go answer some questions. It helps you know if, if you're just uh, kind of where you are on the, on the pathway of belonging, connecting, growing, serving, leading. We ask you to fill that out and then kind of self-assess. We're after 80% of our church self-assessing on the pathway. Is that wrong? No. Is there a verse that says you have to self-assess on the pathway to be right with God at First Family? No. 
Now, I know I'm repeating myself here. That's how we learn, though. I'm trying to show you that there are multiple habits, multiple things we do that are rooted in commanded practices, but we take the freedom often in developing a specific way to implement that. And we have to, as a church, have maturity to know here's the point of the practice and not get hung up on the practice itself. If you're kind of tracking with me, just nod your head. You with me? This is what's going on in this text here, guys. The Pharisees were so hung up on how they went about fasting, they missed the whole point of fasting. Unless you point to the Pharisees and say, man, how dumb must they have been? Just look at your own life and our own generation. We do the same thing. I've made this mistake more times than I can count. Get hung up on a certain way I do things. I've done this in my family. And then sometimes we miss the whole point of what we're trying to point to because it's not done the way Dad said it should be done. Bible reading. It's a command to read your Bible, to study the Scriptures. How you go about that, where you start, the amount of time you spend, it's discretion and wisdom. Are you with me? It's your call. I might like it a certain way, and maybe I teach that to my kids. Maybe they develop their own style later. But my point is, I think you're, you're, you're getting this, aren't you? Let's not be so hung up on practices while they're healthy, helpful, and even commanded at times. Let's not be so hung up on how we go about them that we miss the point, which is they, they're designed to point to Jesus and to increase our love for him and our anticipation of his second coming. And because he's already come once and fulfilled every promise of the Old Testament, we do have this incredible joy. And yet we have this, this longing still for his second coming. So we have this two-handed joy. And practices help us balance those. But if the practice becomes the main thing and not the person of Christ, then we've missed the point of the practices. We're just like the Pharisees in Mark 2. We're asking all the wrong questions and we're missing the point that the bridegroom has come. Before I kind of wrap this up with, a, with one kind of take-home truth, which I, I think it's already in front of you. It won't be hard. You could probably write it with me. Let me see if you have any questions or not. I think one came in earlier. I want to address this question. You may have texted some in. I don't know if you did or not. But here's one that came in I want to address and then I'll try to go to the uh, take-home truth. But... Here's a question that came in. I was talking to some guys about this topic earlier in the week, and they asked this question. I thought it was a good one. I'll start with this one. Why do we tend to elevate our practices? I think there's two main reasons why. One is generationally, there is this pull to do it better than the one before you. And so what happens is the pendulum takes full effect, doesn't it? Every 20 to 40 years, you kind of see a, a swing in the pendulum. And, you know, we look back and say, man, I'm going to do church different than my parents. We'll take the church one here, for example. Example, And so we kind of tweak with certain things. We're not going to break the command, but we're going to tweak with the music. We're going to tweak with the style. And over time, the pendulum swings. But I'd remind those of you who are going to make it better that there's a generation after you as well. <laughs> and as I've aged a little bit, grown, hopefully matured, I've realized, wow, some things I said when I was 25 about the one before me, they're saying about me now. Like, yikes, I should have been a little kinder earlier. <laughs> this happens in your family. You're raised in the good home, let's say, and you love what your parents did, but you're going to tweak it to make it better. 
Don't forget, your kids are going to do the same thing to you. I'd be kind to your parents, I'm telling you, because your kids are coming up. My point is, there is this sense in which there's a generational pull to try to tweak and adjust the practices to kind of fit the current generation. I don't think that's bad, by the way, as long as we keep the command or the actual point in, in the right perspective. All right? So that's one thing that goes on. We tend to elevate the way we do it as like, well, I can do it better. And sometimes we forget that that's just probably happening throughout time. And we should avoid what C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery. The idea that the next generation will always do it better. Well, they'll do it differently, but it may not be better. We don't know. I'm, I'm surprised how often I hear of young church planners that I work with. And they're implementing practices that predate the 20th century. It's like the Puritans are coming back in some ways. Like, wow, man, this is uh, interesting here, you know? So there's the pendulum in effect, and it's swinging back and forth over generations. There's also the issue of personal preferences. And this is where I think as a church we have to have a lot of maturity and a lot of grace because we tend to elevate practices when they work for us. Would you agree with that? And when something really works for you, you tend to think it will work for everyone. And so you say, man, you should do this, Jason. But Jason, you know, it just may not fit him. Now, he may obey the command, the root of the practice, like I am, but he may do it in a different way. But sometimes our preferences, we kind of get hung up on what I call our, our little K practices. K stands for kingdom. How the kingdom is really kind of landing in my life and taking over and, and really just uh, a, you know, <laughs> remaking me. In, in, in choices and decisions and preferences that really it's kind of how God's going to work through me and how he's going to work in me. It could be different for Jason or Heather or Justin, Kate. And when we try to take the little K practices and say, Kate, you, you've got to read your Bible like I read my Bible. Every morning read a proverb, part of the Gospels, and you've got to study for an hour a day. So when I lay that on her, suddenly... <laughs> my preferences begin to affect actually the point of the Bible reading, which is to, to know how God operates, to see his character. How has he uh, woven together his redemptive plan throughout time? Are you, are you with me? So understand, one of the reasons we elevate our practices in an unhealthy way is there's the generational pull, and then there's this idea of preferences. And when those lean in on us, our nature often just takes over, and we tend to elevate the way we do it as better than anyone else. And I would encourage us, and if it's working for you well, it's not unbiblical, and it's helping you see and savor the treasure of Jesus more, go for it. But where it crosses the biblical line and goes above or beyond the Bible or below the Bible, and in other words, if it's, it's, it's outside, if it's, it's extended in some way, just have the grace and humility to say, you know, here's how I do it. You may have a different way, a better way, but, but just give some room in the body for everyone to have some different little K practices. And let us focus on the big K mandates. Amen? School choice, what you eat, how you eat, where you go. We've all got some parameters. We all want to have a biblical sexual ethic. We want to have the right associations. I'm not doubting any of that. This message isn't about that. I just say within those parameters, there's little K practices. Let's extend some grace so it can oil the wheels that turn in the church so that they're not rubbing in a frictionous way. Okay? Was there another question, Natalie, this morning? Okay. Well, let me just kind of wrap all this up together. Here's kind of how I put this text, these five verses, 
that really aren't about fasting. They're really about Jesus. And how can we not miss him in the middle of still practicing healthy things that, that point to him? I'd, I'd simply say this as a take-home truth. That the point isn't the practice, but the person. That's who we long for. Because that's who makes us righteous. Now, I want you to stare at that phrase for a bit because there's the, the last part of it is something that's important in light of the context. And I'll land the plane here with this, okay? I could have said in this phrase, kind of summing up these five verses, I could have said that's who we long for because that's who we love. That would have been biblically correct as well. I could have said that's who we long for because that's who appeared and is coming again. That would have been biblically accurate. But the context of this question asked by the people and listened into by the religious leaders, as well as questions one and three, which were asked by the religious leaders, the context is this. Hey, why aren't you doing the things that we're doing because we're looking really good because of this? In other words, they asked those questions because they wanted to showcase their self-righteousness. And Jesus answered in the way he answered because he wanted to expose it. Remember the first question? Hey, why do you hang out with sinners, dude? As if they're not sinners. And Christ says, we're all in the bad people group. Remember Travis's message? So we're all in that group. We'll see next week about priorities. And they'll ask the question about a certain day of the week. He'll say, listen, the day of the week is subservient to me. So, so they're asking these questions to show Jesus or to try to showcase to Jesus. Look how good we are. And Jesus answers to actually expose, actually, you're not good at all. Because practices don't make us righteous. Church, listen to me with both ears, both eyes, full-hearted listening. You may fast twice a week. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you think that fasting is making you more righteous, earning you points, gaining you favor, you're sinning. You're actually sinning in your motive and heart's desire by actually trying to do a good thing. It's like thinking you're going to be saved by works. Well, God, I'll do this. I'll give that. I'll go here. I'll... Something I do will bring about God's favor. Nothing you do. There is no practice. There is no habit that garners God's favor. You know why? Because Jesus has already garnered it. Jesus has already earned it for you, so to speak. He has given it to you through his own work his perfect work in his life death and resurrection there is nothing you can do to make God love you more or to declare you more sinless Jesus has done it all so that's why this last phrase matters in this take home truth because the context of all these questions is hey how can we make sure that we're looking good man that we're earning something that God knows we're, we're, we're worthy and so when it comes to fasting, the point isn't the practice. And other things that he kind of alludes to in this 21 and 22 verses, this kind of bigger picture, kind of backing up the train, the point isn't the practice. It's the person. And that's who we long for, right? Because guess who makes us righteous, church? Not your practice, Jesus Christ. 
So are you willing to let him, the new wine, the, the new garment, are you willing to let him come in and just take over your existing systems? Are you ready for him to come and, and give meaning to your habits? Or are you saying this, well, Jesus, welcome, but here's how I do things. I hope you can fit in. Are you hung up on your practices and kind of the way that you go about it and you're missing the point of them? Now, I'm going to be extremely transparent with you at this time. If that is the predominant and consistent lifestyle of someone, that they consistently just miss Jesus and they're hung up on their works, that's the lifestyle of someone who's not born again. And in my desire to be a faithful pastor to you, I'm not going to tiptoe around the issues. If for years you've just convinced yourself, well, I think Jesus lived, and I think he died as a good example. And I'm glad he did that, glad it wasn't me, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I gotta work for this thing. You're missing the point. Which means if you miss Jesus, you miss eternal life. What does the text say? They're destroyed. So all of your effort in the end won't matter. The opportunity is not within the practice. The opportunity is within the person. And when Jesus calls to you to trust him and to repent of trusting in your own practices, your own works, your own worth or merit or good standing, and to reject every bit of that and say, Jesus, everything I'm, I, I need and I'm looking for is in you. All of these things only point to that. When that's our attitude, God saves a person. What does he save them from? The destruction and hell that comes from trusting ourselves. And I just want to appeal to you because this question was asked by, by people around religious leaders. He answered it in the face of people who really thought they, they were good people. They had it under control. All three of these questions were designed to expose self-righteousness. So in a humble, transparent way, I just want to come to you and say, are you one of the ones looking good on the outside? But deep in your heart, you've been trying to use that to earn righteousness. I would just humbly urge you and let go of self-righteousness, which ends in self-destruction. And invite Jesus in to take over your life. Not to adjust to it, to fit into it, but to totally dominate it. Give up your life for Christ. Put down your, your proud practices and find the joy of Christ's full provision. Let's pray together, church. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.